You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Turn to our scripture readings for this afternoon. One from the Old and one from the New Testament. First of all, Genesis 41, verses 41 to 57. Set the context here. We're at the place in Genesis where we read about Joseph. And Joseph has been in Egypt for a number of years. And he has interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh. And then we read at verse 41 of chapter 41. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command. And men shouted before him, Make way! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zaphonat paneah and gave him Asenat, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain, like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Before the years of famine came, Two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. And Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph and do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the world. Now we go to 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 to 21. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. 
but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this commandment without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have wandered from the faith. Grace be with you. This afternoon we continue going through the Heidelberg Catechism. We consider the truth of God's Word as it's been confessed by the church, summarized from the Scriptures. We're in Lord's Day 42. What does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? God forbids not only outright theft and robbery, but also such wicked schemes and devices as false weights and measures, deceptive merchandising, counterfeit money, and usury. We must not defraud our neighbor in any way, whether by force or by show of right. In addition, God forbids all greed and all abuse or squandering of His gifts. What does God require of you in this commandment? I must promote my neighbor's good wherever I can and may. Deal with him as I would like others to deal with me. And work faithfully so that I may be able to give to those in need. Beloved Congregation of Christ, I'd like to begin by reading something to you that I came across recently. It is night in a dark, sleepy slum some distance from the center of reckoning. This conglomeration of shanties was once a heavily populated third-world suburbia characterized by substandard housing, squalor, poverty, 
noise, and bubbling nightlife. On this particular night, the town is a ghost of its former self. The town goes to bed early these days. Many of those whom a few years ago kept the joyful social vigils characteristic of African nightlife, the young men and women that gave the place its vivacity, flavor, and glamour, they are now asleep. They are really sleeping in peace in the various improvised graveyards across the town. They are dead. They are victims of a strange illness that swept across almost all the families inhabiting this stretch. They are dead of AIDS-related causes. And by the looks of things, many more would be joining them soon. On this exceptionally dark night, three children sat, huddled close to a skeletally skinny woman, stretched out on the mat in the dimly paraffin-lamp-lit leaky shack. The woman is dying. She has been lying down in pain, afflicted with bed sores, rashes, and a never-ending spasmic cough. It is a result of this strange illness, the illness that killed her husband about a year ago and has progressively reduced her from a once plumb bell to a crumbled sack of bones. The children, clad in tatters, looked on hopelessly as their mother executed a weak attempt to say something. The last child, three years old, is crying. She is hungry. The kids have not had anything to eat since afternoon, and they are not going to have anything to eat. There is no food. They are going to pass the night on empty stomachs. It is possible that the three-year-old will tire himself out with cries and then fall hopelessly into an exhausted sleep. The other two, six and nine years old respectively, cry when the hunger becomes unbearable. At other times they keep quiet because they have no energy even to cry. The oldest girl, the nine-year-old, is the new mother. She is now hardened by suffering, which she took upon her young shoulders when her mother took ill and was confined to bed. She goes out very early in the morning to the garbage dumps to scavenge for food. She treks about three kilometers in search of water. She has finally dropped out of the elementary school that she was attending, not only because most of the teachers are dead or in the hospital, but equally because there is nobody to pay her tuition and there is no food to eat. Education cannot be had on an empty stomach. It cannot be had when her mother lay dying and her siblings faced starvation for want of food daily. She is not in school and has no hope of ever seeing the four walls of a school again in her life. Her fate has been sealed. HIV AIDS killed her father. It will soon kill her mother. Her three-year-old brother is probably the next in line. She looks 15. Her nine-year-old body has aged fast. She was conceived in extreme poverty. She was born and baptized with hunger and deprivations. Now, she has been forced into maternal responsibilities which she is ill-equipped to shoulder. Her childhood has been stolen and embezzled by the disease that ravaged her family and placed such a heavy, unsupportable burden on her weak shoulders. She has no name. Insignificance is her name. Her story does not make the headlines. She is simply a statistic 
in some database. She has been roped into an unbreakable cycle of poverty that has compromised her childhood and mortgaged her future. With her childhood dropping off the horizon, she is an adult already at an age where her peers elsewhere are still enjoying the patronage of parents and the privileges of childhood. That's the end of what I was going to read. That sad eyewitness account comes from someone living in Africa. The poverty and devastation there is mind-boggling. And it's easy to forget when you don't have to face it every day. We can live our comfortable lives here forgetting that the life expectancy in Sierra Leone is 26. In Niger, it is 29. The same as in Malawi. In Zambia, it goes up to a a mere 30 years. And this affects the economic situation as well. Much of Africa lives and dies on less than a dollar a day. We could go on and on about Africa, but poverty exists in our own country as well. And we don't have to look very far, do we? A recent newspaper article stated that there are well over 100 homeless people in our own backyard here in Langley. Now, some of them to be fair, do choose to live this way. But many do not. Many have fallen between the cracks. Many struggle with mental health issues. And then there's us. We are fabulously wealthy. When we look around us, look at the people who are here this afternoon, we might be inclined to use adjectives like posh, swank, chic, and well-to-do. Many of us are doing well for ourselves and our families. We talk about Christmas and spending hundreds of dollars on gifts. We spend a lot on our summer vacations and our winter cruises. Most of our families have not just one, but two or even more vehicles. So I could go on. And I know that there are are some of you who really struggle to make ends meet. And sometimes you fail. Some of us, it's true, wouldn't eat at certain times if it weren't for a two-by-three piece of plastic. I don't intend to minimize your struggles and the stress you face. Brothers and sisters, let's be honest. Let's be realistic. Even the poorest family in this church is incredibly wealthy by African standards. And even if we were to descend into poverty, something were to go wrong, a whole series of events that we didn't count on, there are numerous safety nets for us and for our families, including the help available from the church community. Loved ones, we are rich, unbelievably rich. And the Eighth Commandment addresses us in our richness. There's the negative side of the commandment. Forbidding us to commit theft and robbery. We're taught to avoid wicked things like deceptive merchandising, taking excessive interest 
That's what usury is. And fraud. We also know that this commandment addresses what lives in our hearts. It tells us that God forbids greed and the abuse or squandering of His gifts. All that we find in the first question and answer of the catechism. But then there's a second question and answer which focuses on the positive. What does God require of you in this commandment? We confess that we're required to promote the good of our neighbors, to do unto others as we would have them do to us, and then also work faithfully so that we may be able to give to those in need. What's that last phrase, giving to those in need, that we're going to hone in on this afternoon? We've already noted that we are rich. We're going to see that the Gospel introduces us to another adjective that needs to be added when we speak about the church, when we speak about ourselves. It's the adjective righteous. The Gospel guides us to be the righteous rich. Well, first of all, let's look at the shadows of the righteous rich in the Old Testament. Genesis already, we see very wealthy individuals, wealthy individuals who use their wealth for the kingdom of God, for its advancement. In Genesis 13, verse 2, we read that Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and in gold. In fact, this is the first time that wealth is mentioned in the Bible. And here it's mentioned in a positive way. It's connected with the blessing of God. Genesis 12, God promised to bless Abram and to, to make him a blessing for others. Abram's wealth was not an end in itself. Rather, it existed to serve the needs of others, to serve the kingdom of God. A similar pattern emerges with Joseph towards the end of Genesis. Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt, but through a number of providential circumstances, he emerges as the second most powerful figure in the land, second only to Pharaoh. With his power comes access to riches and wealth. And he uses his power and the riches that are available to him for the good of the people around him. Not only for the Egyptians, but also for the surrounding nations. And when his own family comes looking for help, he also extends it to them. Later in Genesis 47, we read that Joseph generously provided his fathers and his brothers and their families with food. And then after Jacob, their father, died, in Genesis 50, Joseph reassured them that he would continue to provide for them out of the means available to him. Clearly, he tried to use his riches and his power in a righteous way for the good of others. With Joseph, we see a man who endured great hardship, great suffering, he went through trials, eventually came through, and he received glory and honor. The riches he received, he used for the good 
those around him. His wealth and power, like that of Abram, were not an end in themselves, but existed to, to bless others. See a pattern here. It's the shadow of our Savior that we see. Still with the Old Testament, we could also consider Boaz. Boaz is described in Ruth as being a man of standing, which means that he was a man of some substance in his community. Maybe he wasn't the wealthiest person, but he was certainly wealthy when compared with Ruth and Naomi. He has land, he has servants, he has abundant harvests, and he has shekels to spare. Now the Bible doesn't specifically use the word righteous to describe Boaz, but everything fits. God's law had particular concern for the alien and the widow, for those who were vulnerable in society. So did Boaz. Boaz acts with faithfulness towards his late relative Elimelech by redeeming the land of Naomi and by marrying Ruth. He becomes the kinsman redeemer, the Goel. And in this too, he shows a righteous heart. He stands in contrast to that other relative, the nameless relative, who refuses to be the kinsman redeemer. Why does he refuse? because he's so concerned about spoiling his own inheritance. Boaz is the righteous rich, a man who uses his wealth and power to redeem others. Here again, a shadow of the gospel of our Savior. And so there are a number of positive examples of righteous richness in the Old Testament. However, there are also a good number of negative pictures as well, especially in the prophets. As one example, in chapter 22 of his prophecy, Jeremiah contrasts the behavior of the good king, Josiah, with his evil son, Jehoiakim. Josiah had defended the cause of the poor and needy. He was wealthy, like most of the kings of Israel, and he used his wealth and his riches, his power, for the good of his people. But his son, Jehoiakim, on the other hand, had his eyes and his heart set on dishonest gain, according to Jeremiah 22. Jehoiakim shed innocent blood, and he oppressed the people, and he practiced extortion. Jeremiah prophesied that this mafia king would have the burial of a donkey. It's recorded in Scripture so that God's people would hear that warning and learn and follow a different way. A different way is what we find in the Gospel. It's the Gospel which leads us to be the righteous rich today. As we turn to the New Testament, we come out of the shadows and we see a Savior revealed in HDTV technicolor. The Son of God laid His glories aside and took on our human flesh and lived among us. And in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, we read these words about our Savior. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. Jesus Christ is the truly righteous rich. Philippians 2 gives us the same picture of our Savior, a Savior who emptied Himself of all His riches and majesty so as to save us, to save you. Yes, it's true that before the Incarnation, He didn't have gold and silver and all kinds of earthly possessions that we might hold valuable. He had something far better. He had equality with God. He shared God's glory and power and majesty. He was rich in a way that that we can hardly comprehend. We have these human minds that are so puny and so attuned to earthly and perishable things. But Christ was rich in a far more significant way. And He gave it up so as to save us from the wrath of God against our sins. Also to save us from the wrath of God for all the times that we have been unrighteous. For all the times that we have broken the Eighth Commandment in whatever way. Here too we can think of what Paul says in Ephesians 3 verse 8. He says there that God's grace was given to him so that he could preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Riches. And those riches include Christ's personal obedience to the Eighth Commandment. He never failed. And He never fails in using His wealth for the good of those around Him. A perfect man. A perfect Savior for you. And according to Romans 4.24, God credits that righteousness of Christ to us. He says it's yours. All His perfect obedience is ours. And so we are right with God. And we have a heavenly Father who deeply loves us. Could there be anything better? Anything richer? And when Christ rose again from the dead, and ascended into heaven. All His riches were there for Him to take up once again. Again, He shone in His glory. And the good news of the Gospel is that today He uses all His riches. He uses His might and power, His equality with God, all His obedience, all His suffering. He uses it all for you, for your benefit. He is rich and He is righteous. And so you too, even apart from whatever material possessions you may have or don't have, through union with Him, you are also righteous before God. You have right standing. By your faith, you are rich in a way that should stun you. And you know, a healthy bank balance can't compare to what you have in Jesus Christ and who you are in Him each and every one of you. And it's union with Him that leads you forward in the Christian life 
It's union with Him that leads you to be the righteous rich in this life with everything you have, including your your money and your material possessions. You know, a moment ago I mentioned 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. I'll read it again. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. And do you know what the context there is? 2 Corinthians 8? Well, it's Paul encouraging the Corinthians to be generous in supporting the poorer brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. He writes about the Macedonian churches and how they contributed so much even though they themselves were not that well off. They gave generously. And then he uses these words about Christ. We just read 2 Corinthians 8-9 to stir up the Corinthians too. He says, look to your Savior now. Look at how rich you are with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let the gospel guide you to generosity and righteousness. And do you know what will result from all that? Well, Paul lays that out in verses 12 to 13 of 2 Corinthians 9. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. You did get that, didn't you? Men will praise God. Men will thank God. And I ask you, isn't that what we want? This is where it's important to remember that the Catechism deals with the Eighth Commandment under the heading of our thankfulness. And what are we thankful for? Of course, it's the good news, the Gospel of Christ. The good news that we are saved by grace alone. The Gospel leads us to a life of sanctification, also in connection with what we do with our earthly goods and with our money. And this is especially challenging for those who have been so richly blessed. And here we can find a parallel in the New Testament. A parallel with the church at Ephesus. We're not the first ones to face these challenges. Now, Ephesus was, you could say, the Alberta of the Roman Empire. It was the leading city of the richest region. It was the most prosperous commercial center of its age. In Acts 19, we read about the ministry of Paul in Ephesus. Because of the preaching of the gospel, practitioners of the occult, they burned their books. Now, we might read over that quickly and we might imagine these people with these flimsy paperbacks throwing them in the fire, big flames going up in the air and so forth. But remember that in those days, books were not a dime a dozen. Books were not cheap. They didn't have printing presses to mass produce them. And so we're told that the books burned were worth over 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a lot of money. In Acts 20.33, 
when Paul is saying farewell to the Ephesian elders, he implies that there was a lot of wealth in the Ephesian congregation. He implies that when he says that he coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. And if we turn to his letter to the Ephesians, we learn that not everyone in that congregation was well off. There were people who were. There were masters, people who could own slaves, but there were also slaves too. Well, Paul's letter to Timothy fits in with this Ephesian context. You see, Timothy was what you could call the first real pastor of the Ephesian congregation. And Paul's letter comes to him as he's doing pastoral work in Ephesus. And first of all, Paul instructs Timothy about the dangers of wealth. He warns against the desire to be rich. I think we need that warning too. If you want to be rich and have it all, you'll fall into temptation. The Bible says you will be plunged into foolish and harmful desires that will ruin you and destroy you. The love of money, says Paul, is a root of all kinds of evil. It doesn't say that money is the root of all kinds of evil, but the love of money. The, the problem is in our heart. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And the world around us says, no, that's not true. The love of money, man, that's what it's all about. That's what you've got to have. You've got to foster that, encourage that love of money so you can work hard, get more of it. The world encourages the desire to be rich. Just think, one example, think of how lotteries advertise, how they work. They work with that desire in our hearts to have it all, to have it easy, to have it now. The Word of God tells us that the desire is dangerous. It's snake-think, loved ones. Instead, godliness with contentment is great gain. When you're happy with what God has given you, That's a sort of richness the world doesn't know. The world can't appreciate contentedness. So on the one hand, there is a warning against greed, covetousness, and the desire to be wealthy in material things. Very serious warning. But on the other hand, Paul recognizes that there are those who are rich in this present world. There were those who fit that description in Ephesus. And I think it's fair to say that for many of us, Paul's words here apply equally, apply directly to us too. Do you want to know exactly what it means to be the righteous rich as people of God today? Well, listen to what Paul says here at the end of 1 Timothy. First of all, he says that we are not to be arrogant. We're not to be proud and haughty just because we have so much money and material wealth. Over and over, the Bible warns against pride. 
And here the Holy Spirit warns against pride specifically with those who are wealthy and well-to-do. It's obviously a reason for that. Because material wealth does bring with it the temptation to let your heart swell, to let your head grow bigger, to look down on others because they don't share our social status. They don't share our values. The Word says in Romans 12, verse 4, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. And then in Romans 12.16, Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. So first of all, being the righteous rich means that we're not to be arrogant. Second, being the righteous rich means that we do not put our hope in wealth, which is uncertain, but instead in God. God who gives us everything for our enjoyment. Interesting, isn't it? It's not a sin to be wealthy. It is not a sin to be richly blessed with material things. It's not wrong to enjoy those things. However, unbelief is sin. Idolatry is also sin. When we place our hope in our wealth, that's unbelief and idolatry. We are to trust in God, the one who has so richly blessed us. The righteous rich put their faith in God where it belongs. Third, the righteous rich, we're told, are rich in good deeds. They not only have an abundance of money and material things, they also have a heart that that overflows for those who don't share their blessings. They're generous and they're willing to share. They work hard so that they can give to those who are in need, both inside and outside the community, the church community. And when it comes to charity, they err on the side of generosity. Nowhere in the Bible do we ever read a statement like, let no one take advantage of you and abuse your generosity. Yes, we we do have to be good stewards of what we have received. But stinginess and cold-heartedness are never commended. From elsewhere in Scripture, moving away from 1 Timothy, we do glean even more insights into what the righteous rich look like. And I'll just give a, a brief summary of some of those. For instance, they always remember that the source and the true ownership of their riches is with God Himself. Everything we have belongs to God. It doesn't belong to us. The righteous rich would never rob God by holding back their contributions to the church or by merely giving God the leftovers. They know that it is the first fruits which are to go back to Him directly. They recognize that wealth is secondary to many things, including wisdom, 
Wisdom is much more important than wealth. But so is personal integrity and humility and the all-encompassing category of righteousness. The righteous rich also recognize that being materially blessed is not a, a privilege and it's not a right. It's a responsibility. They endeavor to use their wealth with and for justice. For instance, they refuse to use their wealth for corrupt ends, for corrupt things. And finally, they set an example by limiting their personal consumption. Well, brothers and sisters, there is a lot more that could be said on this matter. We could go through numerous examples and illustrations of how to be the righteous rich. We could talk about child sponsorship, about sponsoring refugee families, about supporting various charitable organizations, about getting involved in a hands-on way through relief and development trips. We could talk about those things. But what I wanted to do was give you the principles. The principles and equip you for thinking about how to put those principles into practice. And did you know that we have a special resource in our church dedicated to helping you be the righteous rich? It's true. Our church has seven men who are responsible for the good progress of the service of charity. They're called deacons. And sometimes people have the idea that the work of the deacons is like firemen. They, they go out and they put out fires of financial crisis. That's all they do, basically. But it's not true. Their work is broader. It includes equipping the congregation for works of service and for concrete demonstrations of compassion, mercy, and justice. And if you have a question about how to be the righteous rich, they're the men to see. I'd encourage you to approach one of the deacons, perhaps a couple of them, for their, their guidance and their assistance. I'm sure that they'd be happy to help you work through that. Beloved, we are rich with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've also been given much in the way of material things and money. You know, as we conclude, it's worth thinking about that that may not be good for us. Who can help but think of the words of our Savior about the camel going through the eye of the needle? It doesn't have to be that way. And you know, our Lord Jesus did say that it was impossible for men. He went on to say that all things are possible with God. And so looking to our Savior in faith, letting His Gospel and His Spirit guide us, it's true, we can be rich and righteous. God can make it happen. And so it's appropriate that right now we pray for His help in that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, 
Through Christ Jesus our Lord, you've made us so rich in what really matters. We thank you for the life that is truly life, the life we have through him, our Savior. Father, we are grateful for the gospel. And we pray that we would have more grace so that the gospel would continue to transform and shape our lives. We ask that you would lead us with your Holy Spirit so that we who are rich in this present age would not be arrogant. Teach us with your word so that we would never hope in wealth, but only in you. Help us, O God, to do good, to be generous and to be willing to share. We pray for those who are in desperate need and who live in true poverty, whether in less developed countries or in our own nation. We pray, Father, that they would receive help and that they would experience your mercy. We also pray for those among us who do have financial stresses and worries, especially with all the pressures that come with this time of year. We pray that you would help them also to place their trust in you, that you would show yourself to be their faithful God and Father, that you would lead them through their trials. Father, please hear us in the name of the one who became poor for our sakes, Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.